0: Baruch Spinoza says, Schisms do not originate in a love of truth, which is a source of courtesy and gentleness, but rather in an inordinate desire for supremacy. And I say that ism and schism will always come into the world together. But that's okay, because I'm trying to tell one story, a story in which the whole world can join. I'm Rob Mike Foyer, and this is The Jewish Story. Episode 16, Ism and Schism. So we left off the last episode with the rise of Islam, but also with a sense that the conversation of the Gemara is ripe for a stage of serious embodiment. Because as the Jews become a minority group within larger Christian and Muslim societies, their ability to maintain the edges of identity is going to become an increasingly important power. And it's going to be during the Gaonic period that a one-to-one relationship between law and identity will be achieved. This is the time when Am Yisrael will truly transform into the Jews through the final consolidation of Judaism, their religion. And in order to understand the significance of this building, which is undertaken really, or at least completed in the Goanic period, we're going to have to appreciate exactly who the Goanim were, what they did, and the story that drove them to do it. Now this full picture is going to actually take us two episodes, so strap in. For now, let's start with this. How do the Geonim and the Exilarch emerge in the Islamic era as a triumvirate with virtually autonomous rule over the Jews of Babel of Babylon? Now it seems to me that the story of why the Exilarch has the image of a wasp in his emblem explains it best. The historical record of our Jewish story gets quite patchy in the transition between Persia and the Islamic Empire in the early 7th century, and therefore, whenever the historic record is patchy, the legends are always thick. One thing is certain the name of the exilarch Bostanai is bound up with this transition between Persian and Islamic rule. There are stories left, right, and center, stories from before his birth, after his birth, but for now, Suffice it to say that he was of the house of the Exilarch, which is to say the house of King David, through King yo the king of Yehuda, exiled long ago, before even the first temple was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And the story goes that in his youth, Boston Ai came before the king to press a claim. Now some say that the king was Omar, the second of the Rashidun Caliphs, who had just come north on conquest, as we actually left him at the end of last episode, so Boston and I had come to press the case that he was now sixteen, and the Epitropus, the court-appointed guardian who held his household and therefore the office of the exilarch in trust, refused to surrender his claim. And as the young boy stood before the caliph, the caliph looked out and noticed that a wasp had floated through the air and landed on his temple. And not only did the boy not brush it away or flinch, that the wasp began to repeatedly sting him. And as the blood trickled down the side of the boy's face, and he still made no move to chase it away, the king was astonished and called the youth forward to say, what exactly is going on? So the young boy said that he, Boston I, was of the house of David, and he had been taught since his youngest days, that since they themselves had lost their throne way back when the first temple was destroyed, that they were neither to laugh, nor lift up a hand, nor speak when they stood before a king, but to stand in absolutely motionless respect. Now, Omar was so moved by the boy's demeanor and his self control that he immediately investigated the fit case, found in his favor, and rewarded him his rightful office of exilarch. Furthermore, he elevated the office of Exilarch and gave it the power to appoint judges for all the Jews of Babylonia and also to appoint the heads of the two academies, Sura, and Pumbedita. And in memory of this event, Balsenai introduced a wasp into the emblem of the Exilarchate. Now, it's a beautiful story, but I think there are two things that we can learn from it for our purposes. First of all, that the rebirth of the office and authority of the Exilarch and the heads of the academies, who will be the Gaonim that we discuss in a few minutes, in the Islamic era, will not only be as religious authorities, they will also hold the power of state officials. Because Omar gave Vassanai what's known as a reshut, he gave him the right of rule over a specific domain, in fact, a significantly large area of highly concentrated Jewish life. We also see from the story that the ability of the Jew to stand with integrity and bear pain in honor of the commands that he's received in the past will be the cornerstone to his success in exile. Now, the office of Exlar had somewhat disappeared toward the end of the Persian period, perhaps due to the unrest we spoke about in the late 6th century, and now it will return in the person of Boston I. And, as we said, his office will come with it And as we said, with this office will come also the official appointment from the caliph. Furthermore, the divinic lineage, which they're claiming through King Yo-Yachim, is going to be revered by Muslims and Jews alike, and therefore will be a tremendous source of power and pride for these people, living a tolerated life as a minority within the Islamic Empire. So this is the return of the exilarchate. Before we get to the ga'onim, I just want to touch... What exactly are our sources of information for this time period? The first, and perhaps most important, is what's known as the garret of Rav Shreira Gaon. Rav Shreira Gaon actually lives in the middle to late 10th century, and we'll speak about him in place in the next episode, but for now, you should understand that in that period, Rav Nissim of Kerouan, a very important Jewish city in North Africa, wrote a letter asking Rav Shreira the following questions. How did the Mishnah, the Tosefta, and the Gemara come about? What was their process of formation? And furthermore, tell us the history of all the authors of the Gemara and the leadership of the academies up to our day. Rav Nissen wanted to know, how did we get where we are? He was a master of the oral law himself, and a teacher and a leader, a rabbi of his community. But he wanted the backstory. So the garret of Rav Sheragaon. Gaon, will actually be the first work of Jewish historiography. He's the first person to consciously try and give a sense of continuity to the Geonic vision of Judaism. It's a very important letter, and we'll refer to it a number of times. Another is a letter of what's known as Rav Natan the Bavli. Now, this is written in Judeo-Arabic in the mid-10th century. Judeo-Arabic is a discussion unto itself, which will also come to us later. it's quite brief, but it's a highly colorful description of life in the academies, and it's where we actually get any information that we can really glean about what it actually looked like to be in one of these Gaonic academies. Now, there's also the responsa. What a responsa? Well, the Gaonim really developed a new style of rabbinic literary output. They would receive questions from all over the world, and in response, hence the name responsa, they would write answers. This testifies to the existence of the Gaonim as a central authority of Jewish tradition from all over the world. But it's also going to give us quite a funny window because it's really going to tell us what others were interested in and not necessarily what concerned the Gaonim themselves. We're going to come back to the nature and role of these responsa as we go forward. The last source of information we have is what's known as the Cairo Geniza, Geniza was a repository of any written work with the names of God or other sacred subjects on it, which, according to Jewish tradition, should be buried and not destroyed. And the contents of this particular storeroom, Geniza, were found in the Ben Ezra Synagogue in Fustat, that's Old Cairo. Now, over a period of time they were found, but finally the bulk of the material was actually unearthed and taken by the scholar Solomon Schachter when he made a voyage of discovery to Cairo in 1897. Hundreds of thousands of fragments of documents there, which represent a thousand-year continuum of text from the 9th to the 19th century. So those are our sources of information. It's also going to be important to keep an eye on the fact that we are living within the Islamic era, and therefore one word on the shifting nature of the caliphate. The first Caliphate, as we said, is the Rashidun Caliphate, and those will be really the direct inheritors from Muhammad. And that will come to end in 661, when the Umayyad Caliphate begins and places its capital in Damascus. From 661 to approximately 750 is the Umayyad period, and unfortunately, our documentation for this time is poor to non-existent. However, when the Caliphate moves to Baghdad, with the birth of the Abbasid Caliphate in 750 and will actually last to well into the 13th century this is when our records really begin and we see that Rav Chaya ben David Gaon was the first Gaon who's actually described as living in Baghdad because even though Surah and Pampadita, these academies we've described so many times since the Gemara era will retain their names they actually, by the time of the mid 10th century will both be in Baghdad. So who were the Gaonim? In addition to the Exilarch, this political head, who really stood before the Caliph and represented Jewry as a whole, there were two Gaonim, and their title derives from the full Hebrew phrase Rosh Yeshiva Gaon Yaakov, the head of the Shiva of the Academy, the Pride of Yaakov. Gaon means pride in the sense of a genius. The Gaonim were the head of these two academies which had dominated the later stage of the formation of the Gemara, Surin Pompidita. And it's important to note that while the office of the Exarch was largely hereditary, being filled from with a small familial circle, as we said, from the Davidic line, if not actually inherited from father to son, the Geonim, however, were the products of a meritocracy. Each academy had a court of 70 scholars, in a sense parallel to the Sanhedrin, that ancient Jewish high court of old, and these scholars would choose as their head the person most fit for the office of gaon now politics are always present as we will see as our story goes on and they certainly must have played their part in choosing both the exilarch and the gaonim but nevertheless it was genius in torah and in particularly a mastery of the talmud and the gemara that brought these men to leadership and they were indeed leaders because like the exilarch the Gonim wielded significant political power on a regional scale, because, like the Exilarch, each of the two academies had authority over a certain domain, a rishut, that had been granted them by the Caliph. Combined, these three rishuyot, these three domains of the Exilarch and the two actually stretched from the Jordan River eastward to the Indus Valley, the farthest extent of Jewish settlement in the Islamic Empire, and within this region. The Gaonim and the Exilarch had the right to raise taxes, to appoint local court judges. They were indeed the inheritors of the two critical elements that allowed Jewish life to thrive, geographic concentration and autonomous courts. And with this power, they did an astounding thing. They cultivated an entire society which centered on the mastery of Talmud. Now, it's true, that to some degree learning will always be the province of the intellectual elite, as well as the economic elite who actually have the time to pursue it, nevertheless, in the era of the Geonim, they managed to create a social structure which embodied the aspiration, if not the actualization, of placing learning at the center of life. The two months of Adar and Elul, roughly the early spring and fall, were known as the Yarche Kala, the months of gathering. Now. Yarch Yarch means moon, as in month. Kala is a mystery term that I did a little digging into, and it's really not worth confusing ourselves about. The months of gathering; these are the two months which, in particular, have a light agricultural load. The duties on the farm were light, and therefore, the widespread attendance at the academies was at full strength. People would come from all over Bavel and sit before the gaonim, hear their classes, sit themselves, and learn. And the Gemara already, before the era of the Go'onim, testifies to these periodic gatherings playing a central role in the ability of the sages to shape a larger Jewish culture. This is centuries before the Go'onim. By this time, these months have become a time of intensive study. And in particular, the section of the Gemara which be learned in the coming year was announced in order that all of the Jews of Babylon be on the same learning cycle. Now, in between these two months, in the academies were the Geonim, these 70 scholars that we mentioned who sat in rows before them, and the students who actually merited to a stipend because of their ability. Because the Gaonim used their ability to raise taxes and collect money from the diaspora Jewish communities in order to fund a scholarship. So that's who they were. What exactly did they do? And in particular, how are they able to create the ism of Judaism? Now, the Goni were able to shape Judaism out of their understanding of the Talmud, first and foremost, by becoming the intellectual masters of its legal content, and then by becoming the undisputed halachic authorities, the legal authorities, to, even, to whom even the Jewish world well beyond the bounds of Babylon would gradually turn with their questions. The last piece was also by establishing the Babylonian customs as the definitive minhag, the definitive pre- Practice, the story of which we'll come to soon. Through these two tools of law and custom, what the Goethe managed to do was create orthopraxis, a surprisingly homogenous religious identity founded on a uniformity of action. The Jews will become those who practice Judaism, that is, law whose development is driven by authoritative understanding of rabbinic thought, as articulated by the Gaonim. And Judaism will become that which the Jews do, that custom, meaning what happens when communities of those who feel themselves bound by the law actually start to live it in real time. This dynamic of the law defining the people and the people, through their life, in turn, articulating the law, helps to give us a little bit more of a clear definition of the boundaries of the Jewish community within the Islamic empire. It's critical to remember that within Islamic society, the Jews are a tolerated religious minority and an organized community, meaning any public services like health and social welfare are taken care of internally, and any relationship to the larger society on an official level taxes in particular, are dealt with through the communal heads. We've also seen, by the way, since the Theodosian Code of the 5th century, you can go back and do some homework, that the law of the surrounding majority cultures has been used to hem in and define Jewish identity for, at this point, several centuries. Law is a tool for shaping identity from more than just an internal standpoint. Furthermore, now that the vast majority of Jews are actually united under the rule of Islam, by some accounts 90% of world Jewry, the Caliph's recognition of the Exilarch, which we saw through the story of Boston I, and the Gaonim as state officials, actually makes them by definition the heads of the Jews. And this is how ultimately the Gaonim, and specifically with the Babylonian Talmud in their hand, will become the central drivers of Jewish identity for thousand years to come. Now, one last piece in this image of law reigning supreme. It's critical to remember that the Gaonim saw themselves as the inheritors of a closed text. If you're going to give any definition to the distinction between the Gaonim and the active formative periods of the Gemara which preceded them, it will be just that. The Gemara now in their hands is no longer a conversation it's a canonical text. Remember, a conversation is really shaped by the voices of those who are participating in it. But now the gohonim will take the legal and narrative elements as they understand it and use them as a template to shape those who get to participate in that conversation. Now, through their direct rule over the Rishuyot, their domains, and the annual rhythm of the Kala month, they begin to articulate the halachic aspect in particular of the Gemara into a full-blown local culture, and through their responsa, these questions which they receive and answer from Jews all over the world, they will export this culture worldwide. Now, the Gemara actually preserves the idea that occasionally halakhic questions were sent from afar, but in the Ga'onic period, as we said, this responsa will become the central facet of rabbinic activity. We have between five and 10,000 responsa which have been preserved and it's reasonable to assume that they're only a fraction of what was written. And this phenomenon of the question and response is in large part due to the shared cultural, linguistic, and communication infrastructure which the Islamic world provided to the Jews. Furthermore, the centralized authority meant that there was someone to whom to turn. In general, the responses tend to focus on two categories. There are practical legal halakhic questions and there are what we would call questions in learning the interpretation of a specific Talmudic text toward the end of the gonic period actually questions of biblical interpretation and religious doctrine, theology are going to become more common and this is a result of forces that we'll actually discuss in the coming episode, the second half of the story of the Gaonim. one classic and highly significant example of the responsa is called the seder of Rav Amram Sometime in the mid-9th century, Yitzchak ben Shimon of Spain sent a question to Rav Amram, the Gaon of Sura, asking for, I quote, an order of prayer and blessings for the entire year. Now again, you can learn as much from the question as you can from the answer. From the question we can see is that at this point there was no agreed upon consolidated prayer book. And the result was the first attempt at a comprehensive sidur prayer book and we call it the Seder of Rav Amram. Truth is, the Seder of Rav Amram still exists today, but because it was received not as a um, inviolate text, but rather as a framework with which to work, it's been so worked over by the various communities that received it that it's almost impossible to get at the core of what Rav Amram actually said. But we can see through this that the impact of the responsa is actually going to be dependent on how those who receive them put them into action. It could have been a dead letter, but instead, Rav Amram's Seder, his first Sidur prayer book, became the formative moment of Jewish liturgy. Now, how did these responsa actually go back and forth through the world? Well, that happened through the Shlichim, through the Gaonic messengers who were sent to Spain, North Africa, Italy, in order to deliver the responsa, to raise money, because it was customary to send money to the academies, when a question was sent or an answer was received, and to disseminate the Gemara, they had a tremendous impact. You know, Rav Shreira teaches that the Talmud and the Mishnah were not written, but actually redacted. And the rabbis, meaning the Gaonim, are careful to recite them orally and not from copies. It's an astounding thing called oral text. that The Gaonim knew the entire Gemara Baalpeh, by heart. Now this doesn't necessarily mean that the level of textual integrity that we associate with the Gemara was of any concern to them. Because remember, today if I asked you to copy something for me, you'd say, yeah, why don't you send me the uh, email and I'll, I'll just print it out. Whereas in their time, copying meant memorizing complex structure. And the particular issues of syntax or word choice may have been, and often indeed were from the evidence that we have, secondary. And what's even more challenging, as we'll see, is going to return as an issue again and again through Jewish history, is that in a text whose meaning is primary as opposed to whose structure, right? In the written Torah, we developed a whole culture whose purpose was to keep the structure of the text identical. And then we left the interpretive tradition to articulate the meaning. But the Gemara, the meaning is primary. The wording is secondary. Anybody who's ever opened the Gemara has seen that the process of emendation and conflicting uh, what are called Girs'ot versions is is rife. But here, if a Gaon understands the Gemara in such a way, and teaches it in a way where he didn't actually receive the literal reading from his teacher, but believes that the reading he is speaking is the true one, where does the integrity of the text lie? This challenge of oral text is going to come particularly deep, when the Kabbalah, Jewish mysticism, begins to come out of the darker corners of history. But we'll wait for the story of Spain for that one. For now, we should understand that the Shlichim, who both delivered and carried to the Geonim the questions of the Diaspora, were not always simply messengers. Sometimes they were actually scholars of such a degree that they brought the Gemara to the communities of North Africa, Italy, Spain, not in their luggage, but in their minds. So, through the mastery of the Gemara, the Ge'onim cultivated a powerful local culture, based not only on law, which is a critical component of the Gemara, but also organized around the act of learning. They also used their role as central illegal authorities for the Jews of the Islamic Empire, and thus made law the definitive basis for Jewish identity and Place themselves as its arbiters. But they were not without competition. Because in order to use the Gemara as a cultural matrix, right, to take it, drop it down in the midst of a bunch of Jews, and make them into adherents of Judaism, in other words, to create a legal identity, the Go'on of Babel not only had to assert their intellectual supremacy through mastery of the text of the Gemara, they also had to establish themselves as the sole inheritors of a legitimate tradition, minhag. You can picture Tevi right now dancing on the roof. Tradition. So in order to do so, there was one critical opponent they had, and that was the land of Israel. Because whatever the geonim might have thought of their superiority in Torah, the Babylonian academies had no automatic claim on the allegiance of other Jewish communities like North Africa, Spain, and Europe. On the contrary, Eretz Yisrael, the land of Israel, was geographically closer to these far-flung communities, and it had deep historic ties with them from the whole Greco-Roman period that we've discussed. And even within the context that I've articulated of the Islamic empire that gave the Geonim of Babel so much of their aura of officialdom, the Caliph also recognized the rabbis of the land of Israel actually had hegemony over the Jewish population in Syria, Lebanon, Israel, and down through Egypt. Now, what is clear from the very patchy existing documents that we have about rabbinic life in the land of Israel at this period is that the academy, which still exists at this time, primarily in Tveria we'll move around a few places had nowhere near the focus on Talmudic law which the Go'onim of Bavel had established what they were interested in will actually be discussed in the coming episode, but for now suffice it to say, is that they did not pose themselves as masters of law there exists a letter from Picoi Ben Baboy. That's a fun name, huh? He is a student, or he claims to be, a student of the student of Rabbi Yehudai Gaon, who we can identify from Rav Sher's letter as the head of the Sura Academy in approximately the year seven hundred and sixty of the Common Era. Now, the letter was written a few generations later, around the turn of the ninth century, and is an open letter to the Jewish communities of North Africa and Spain. With the avowed purpose of convincing the reader of the exclusive legitimacy of the Babylonian halachic tradition and the practiced customs of Bavel, Picoi claims that there is no continuity to Palestinian tradition; that any hopes of continuity had been lost due to the Christian persecutions that had racked the land of Israel for centuries as opposed to the unbroken Babylonian tradition they had been safe there since the destruction of the second temple he goes on to say that the practice, the customs, the minhag of the Jews in the land of Israel are basically a mixture of ad hoc emergency responses and fragments that have been preserved without a strong learning tradition and thus he says if you want to know who the Jews really are you have to look to Bavel. Now what's interesting is as he goes through a much more detailed account, the only defense that he says that the Jews of Eretz Yisrael offer of their continuity of tradition is what's called minhag oker et ha Right? That means custom actually uproots the law. Because Pico is saying, listen, we have all this legal Precedent, and then we're looking at the practices of the Jews of Eretz Yisrael. We're seeing that the two don't line up. It must be that they lost their tradition. And the Jews of Eretz Yisrael said, no, no, no. Custom actually trumps law. And this is going to be a critical piece in understanding the life of Am Yisrael. There's a phrase that the Gemara uses, which is Minhag Yisrael Torahi, that there's more to the Torah than law. What the Jews do is Torah. And so this idea that your legal analysis can be set aside, and that you look at the organic practice of the Jewish people, will be the core posture of the Jews of Eretz Israel. Now, his letter, Pico's letter, is symptomatic of a much larger effort by the Gaonim to consolidate Jewish identity and thus Judaism around Babylonian tradition. And interestingly, it's at this point in history that we begin to see records of synagogues of Babylonian Jews, even in Israel and Egypt. Now, this is a turning point in the interplay between custom and identity. What does it mean that there are Babylonian Jews in Israel? When the Mishnah, that great record of rabbinic thought, the portable homeland, actually, which is the basis of the whole conversation that we've been having for episodes and episodes, when the Mishnah speaks of minhag hamakom, in the tractate of Makkum Janagu, the idea of local custom, it's an assumption that local custom is a product of geography. We do what we do because we are where we are. And here where we are, we've always done it this way. The question that the Mishnah wants to know is at what point when I change my location do I become obligated to adopt local custom? But now, six centuries later, we're seeing the transformation of custom, which was once reflective of geography, into a separate and portable component of identity. What do I mean? I'll give you an example. How many people listen to me right now think of themselves as Ashkenazi Jews? Right? Ashkenaz, as we'll discuss in the coming episodes, is actually located in the Rhineland, in that border territory between France and Germany. I'm willing to bet most of you who think of yourselves as Ashkenazi Jews have never even been to the Rhineland much less did you or your parents or your grandparents ever live there. But nevertheless, there is a communally preserved set of customs and identity, which now is not a product of geographic location, but actually is an portable element of identity. And this is going to play a very important role in articulating that story I told in the last episode about my daughter's Devar Torah. right? Because as the hammer blows of exile break the Jews into ever smaller components, it will be law and in particular custom, because people cling to custom in a way in which law can never really appeal. It will be these forces that serve to hold the Jews together as well as to separate them from the non-Jews around them. But they will also separate them from Jews who are not like them, and that's going to become a pressing issue in the modern era. All you have to do is walk the streets of Jerusalem and see how that plays out. In the long run, when it comes to this battle for the Gaonim to establish not only their legal hegemony, but their claim to sole legitimate minhad custom, it will, they'll win. But it will actually be certain communities in Italy and in the Rhineland, which becomes Ashkenaz, that will be unknowingly the last bastions of the influence of the custom of Eretz Yisrael. Now, what's strange is that both of these communities will have a conscious allegiance to the literary tradition of the Babylonian Talmud, because it will reign supreme sooner rather than later. But they'll have a tension which plays itself out if you spend enough time learning the Gemara, and particularly in the Tosfos, for those of you who are in the know, there'll be a tension that's felt between lived tradition and literary tradition no matter how you slice it, here we are the Goanim have managed to establish their legal authority and their minhag their custom as supreme and thus they've more or less finished the rabbinic project of unifying practice into religion of shaping Judaism out of diverse sets of Jews and in turn using that Judaism to shape the Jews for a thousand years to come Now it's worth noting that both the Gemara itself and the archaeological evidence which has been covered of the Gemara's period suggests that during the Tanaitic and Amoric periods there were plenty of Jews, sometimes and often the majority who acted in ways of which the rabbis completely disapproved. But we have not seen an organized opposition to rabbinic authority since the days of the Sadducees in the time of the second temple until now because remember ism and schism are born into the world together with the birth of orthodoxy what might have been seen as heterodoxy will now be labeled as heresy i refer you to the process of the nicene council and the birth of christian orthodoxy which occurred in the early fourth century and how that was bound up with the persecution of heresy for many centuries to come. So, when it comes to the story of Judaism, in the 8th century, as the Gaonim are really beginning to reign supreme and to create Judaism with this one-to-one mapping between identity and law, arises the movement which is known as Karaism. Now there are many individuals and groups who will contribute to this movement. In fact, it's even difficult to call it a movement in any formal sense. But they're called Kerites likely because of the word Mikra. Mikra is the Hebrew term for the written word. And their name really indicates the primary bone of contention between the Geonim and the rabbinic tradition which they represent, and the Kerites. The Go'onim argued, in tradition of the sages all the way back to the Pharisees of Second Temple times, that the Torah itself presupposes some external law without which it would be impossible to live by. This is the oral law, whose development we've been following since the time of the Maccabees. Go back and listen to a little bit of uh, episodes 4 through 10, I believe. Right Now the carrots took a verse from the Psalms as their slogan. 19.8, if you want to look it up. The Torah of the Lord is perfect, meaning that the Torah is completely self-sufficient and can be understood and lived without reference to any outside authority. Granted, even the most extreme element of this diffuse movement recognize that it's simply not possible to live many of the laws of Torah without some level of interpretation. For instance, when it says in Devarim, you shall bind them as a sign upon your hand, what exactly does that look like? Therefore, the Karaites will be continually forced to develop their own interpretive tradition, one which, by the way, is often marked by literalism, stricture, and even asceticism. Because if you take the injunction of the Torah, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, literally, you're going to walk around in a world of the blind and toothless. And the most famous name of all the leaders of this many-faceted and decentralized movement, right, who would actually be retroactively claimed as its founder, was Anan ben David of whom we unfortunately know very little that can be relied upon. Most of what we know about Anan actually comes through rabbinic anti karaitic polemics, and a lot of argumentation that was going on, even though we see evidence in the Cairo that these communities often live peaceably side by side. Anan lived in the mid-8th century, and we know that he wrote one major work called Sefer HaMitzvot, the Book of Commandments, fragments of which have actually been preserved in the Cairo he is also reputed to be the author of the Karite slogan, Search diligently in the Torah and do not rely on my opinion. It's a big question about Anan and the other leaders of the Karite movement, whether they thought that they were creating anything authoritative in their own words at all, or whether what they were simply doing was enjoining everyone to be their own leader. Rav Nachronay actually attributes to him another saying, Forsake the words of the Mishnah and the Talmud, and I will compose for you a Talmud of my own. And in these two phrases, we can see that aside from the philosophical and even legal distinctions, there was an argument going on here about authority. Now, the center of carried activity, up until the Crusades, 11th century, will be in Jerusalem. And in a very strange twist of events, the Kerites apparently came under the influence of what we now think of as the Dead Sea Scrolls. There is a letter from the Nestorian Catholicos of Baghdad, Timotheus, who reports that the Kerites had learned from local Bedouin of ancient manuscripts found in caves above the Dead Sea. Now, this letter remained a strange footnote in our understanding of Kerism until the uncovering of the Cairo Geniza, because in the Kyruganiza, amongst those hundreds of thousands of pages and fragments of pages, were found two copies of what was known as the Damascus document. It was the or not V, one of the central instructionals of the Qumran sect. And so the Essenes and their particular sectarian worldview of Judaism lives on within the Karaite movement. History is full of twists and turns. In a sense, the Gaonim and the Karaites are rebattling the fights of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Essenes at the end of the Second Temple period. Well, maybe it's best to end as I began with a story, because even though we know little about Anan ben David, that personality most associated with the origins of the Karait rebellion, rebellion against rabbinic authority in particular there is a 12th century account of his rise which, we, which was found in the Cairo Geniza. And though it's clearly an attempt to cast a negative light on this man whose teaching led to a schism with the freshly forged ism of Judaism, I think it still has something to offer us. So it says in approximately 760 of the Common Era, Shlomo ben the II, the exilarch of Babylon, died childless. And two brothers amongst his nearest kin... Anan ben David and his brother Hanania, also known as Josiah, were next in the order of succession. Now eventually, it was not Anan who was chosen, but rather his brother by the Go'anim, because they had a judgment on Anan that he was not worthy, unclear why, and that choice was confirmed by the caliph of Baghdad, as was the custom. The difference is that Anan refused to accept the decision of the Go'anim, and he declared himself the true exilarch, gathering followers around himself and basically beginning to hold court. It's at this point that an intra-Jewish struggle becomes an affair of state. Remember, the exilarch is the appointee of the caliph, and by claiming to be the rightful exilarch, Anand is now imprisoned as a rebel against the state and condemned to death. Now the story goes that in jail he meets a prominent fellow prisoner, the Muslim philosopher, Abu Hanifa al-Numan ibn Thabit and to me it's fascinating that Abu Hanifa could be loosely translated in Arabic and Hebrew as the father of hypocrisy nevertheless it says in the story that he gave Anan ben David a piece of advice which will save his life he said don't claim to be the head of the Jews set yourself to teach the Torah in a manner completely opposite to the traditional interpretation and then claim that you're not a rebel but the head of a new religion it was a strategy that saved his life and split the Jewish people. So, as I said, there are many reasons to doubt the historicity of this tale. Nevertheless, I believe it contains a message for us all, even in our time. Note that even the rabbinic opponents of charism sensed where the problem might actually lay. And that is, it's all well and good to found your identity on law but when you join power to law and use it to create official religion this is when you place your authority in ism and just remember schism is never very far behind i just want to thank all the people that help make this possible i want to thank we're coming up the numbers are coming up the over thirty individuals who give their hard-earned money to keep this content free, syndicated, and widely distributed. If you want to join them, go right now to www.patreon.com www.patreon, and you can find my M. Foyer page. i also like to thank the folks at the Land Israel Network for giving me a platform to reach such a broad spectrum of the world. I want to thank Pardes, at parde for giving me the opportunity to touch so many good Jewish hearts and minds. I want to thank Suomiyakov, suomiyakov.com, because it's my home. And I want to thank you for listening. I'm Mob Mike Foyer, and this is the Jewish story.